All right, well, we've got a lot of ground to cover, all right? And last night I preached the longest sermon I've ever preached at Cornerstone, so buckle up, <laughs> all right? Because it's going to be long, but we're going to have fun. Would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45. It should be a familiar story to you. It's actually one of the parables, very short parable. If you have your pew Bibles in front of you, uh, you're going to want to turn to page 818, um, and that'll take you right to where you need to be. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45. Would you do me a favor? Would you stand for the reading of God's word this morning? The words of Jesus. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. The reading of God's word, amen. You may be seated. I know it was short, right? That was real short. Some of your faces were expecting to stand for a while. So have you heard this parable before? Anybody heard this parable? Have you read it? Have I gotten your attention yet? Yeah, this is, this is an interesting parable, is it not? There's been a lot said about this parable. I'm not sure if you've heard a teaching on it before, but we're going to look at that today. We're beginning a new series this week, a new discussion with you. Just wrapped up wonderfully at the park last week with a time of testimony and praise and communion, hearing from Pastor Tim talk on Psalm 23. If you weren't there, you missed it. Sorry, hopefully you have the fear of missing out and next year you will be there because it was awesome just to be together as the body of Christ. We're trusting that the Spirit of God will cause us to see the fruit from that series that will continue to be a church that grows in our worship of God, amen? But we're beginning a new series that I think you will find fascinating by God's grace um, and very fruitful for you and for your walk so the series is entitled Schemes and Victories, and it will outline in Scripture schemes of the enemy as well as ways in which we can overcome the enemy. So now uh, that I've got your attention, because this is one of those topics that uh, pastorally we often hear you want to hear more about this because you're crazy people. No, but this is one of those uh, topics, right, that becomes really sensationalized and we're really fascinated uh, with this topic. Um, we don't want to draw attention to the enemy or give him more credit than he deserves. He doesn't need any help. We don't need to be the enemy's hype man. Do you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes we spend so much more time talking about the enemy, uh, especially things that we can't know, and I don't know what that is. Paul warns us not to do that, not to talk about foolish conspiracies or those sorts of things. However, it can be beneficial for us to know how the enemy operates so that we can see him coming from a distance. I got a phone call yesterday, actually a conversation. I was going over my notes um, for today um, and last night, and I went down to the sanctuary at March Street, 
I got interrupted with a conversation, and it was a discouraging conversation. I was going to pray, I was going to go over my notes for the message, and boom, I got hit with a discouraging conversation, um, and it completely threw me off my game, right? I just, I didn't end up going into the sanctuary and praying. I went back up to my office and prayed there and worked through that, but I ended up talking to Pastor Tim. He helped me work through that. It was, it was good, it was, it's a good thing. God is good and he's faithful, but it wasn't lost on me that that was an attack of the enemy, right? meant to discourage. We all experience those things throughout the week. I'll tell you when you experience it the most, in the minivan on Sunday mornings. Yeah, that's where you question your salvation. You know what I mean? That's where the enemy like really causes you to think, Lord, I don't even know if I'm saved anymore. I said things to my kids today that I don't know if I can take that back, right? But we all have those kinds of experiences, and we need to be able to identify when the enemy is operating, right? We're told to take every thought captive, to compare it to Scripture, right? To see if it lines up with God's Word, and if it doesn't, bulldoze that thing. Don't let it become a stronghold in your life. Man, take every thought captive. Compare it to what God's Word says. If it doesn't line up, tear it down. Don't put your faith or your belief in what the enemy whispers, the lies of the enemy, right? That's a hard thing to learn to do. It's something that we're all continuing to learn to do. But we're going to be looking at some of the schemes and the tactics um, of the enemy um, and the victories that we can have over them. So now that I have your attention, and just before we hop into our passage for this morning's message, let's be clear about our enemy so that we can be prepared. To be more biblically accurate, we actually have three enemies. Did you know that? We have three enemies. If, if you've heard any of Pastor Tim's messages in the past, he's referenced these three enemies at some point, so bonus points if you've been taking notes and if you remembered that. But there's three enemies. It's the world system, it is the devil, and it is our flesh. And each one of these works in unison to form a formidable team, right? You can't get away with saying, the devil made me do it. Not going to work, right? You can't say that. It is our own desires when tempted that gives birth, right? We willingly choose and we will be accountable before God for every idle word spoken, okay? The devil didn't make you do it, but the devil absolutely tempts us in conjunction with the world system, which constantly tries to get us to be more, have more liberties in our walk with God. And then our flesh is like, is it really so bad if this one time I just do this one thing? And then immediately the conviction of the Spirit reminds us, ah, man. But that's how those three work together, and those are the enemies that you and I often face. Now, regarding the devil or Satan, it is essential for us to recognize that he is a real enemy, right? He's very real. There is probably no tactic more effective than Satan than to cause you to believe that he doesn't exist. But he does. He is real, and he is dangerous, and he can do significant harm. And much can be said about the devil from the Bible's uh, perspective, and much speculation has been made and said about the devil from extra-biblical perspectives. And I want to caution you there. I want to encourage you not to go beyond the bounds of Scripture and to make assumptions about how you think the enemy might operate. This is common. There are a lot of people who spend a lot of time focused and hyper-focused on these sorts of topics, 
and it will not be fruitful for you in your walk with God, and it will not help you grow in maturity, okay? So don't go beyond uh, the bounds of Scripture. Like I already said, the enemy doesn't need a hype man. And while we should not underestimate the devil, we don't need to prop him up as anything more than he really is. This is a quote that I love that talks about the enemy. I don't know who it's attributed to, but I don't want to take credit for it. But it says that the enemy or the devil is nothing more than a dog on a leash. He's just a dog on a leash, right? So if you have this picture in your mind, if you've seen this picture before, of Jesus and Satan in an arm wrestling match, they're not even in the same league, right? They're not even in the same league. If you get this idea that, that God is making moves in history and then uh, Jesus is ma- oh, Jesus, God is making moves and then Satan is then making moves in, like a chessboard, no, 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 no. It's not even close. It's already over. It's been determined. The victory is won, right? So don't, don't like give the enemy any more credit than he deserves. John Piper says it this way much better than I. He says that God uses demons to undo the design of the father of demons. God uses Satan to defeat the purposes of Satan. We see this in scripture in examples like Job and Judas and Paul, right? And it's essential to be clear that in the end, all of the plans of the enemy all of them will be thwarted, turned on their head, and will ultimately be used to accomplish the will of our God and Father. That is good news, people, especially when you look at the world around you and you think, what is going on? Our God is still on the throne. He is still on the throne. He is still in control. And everything that the enemy is doing, he's just a dog on a leash and God will undo the plans of the enemy to bring about the most good for his glory. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I love what 1 John, what John tells us in 1 John 4, 4, like one of my kids in the middle of the night when we get a thunderstorm and they run into our bedroom and they're scared. John says, little children, you are from God and have overcome for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Amen? So with that out of the way, the passage that we're looking at today is a great passage to teach us how we are to read the Bible. And what I mean by that is that this passage is often misused by individuals to speak about spiritual realities that go way far beyond the bounds of Scripture. You would never pick up a book, right, and start reading it in the middle of the book. You would never do that. You would never join a conversation, I'll bet you've done this though, where you've joined a conversation in the middle of a joke and they tell the punchline of the joke but you don't get it and you start laughing like you knew but you had no idea, right? We've all done that at some point but you would never join a conversation and add to the conversation as if you knew what the conversation was all about. We do that with scripture all of the time though. We're feeling discouraged in our walk with God so we open up the Bible and we expect to hear him speak to us through his word. Not a great recipe for reading. If you're gonna read the Bible like that, just go to the Psalms and read a chapter from the Psalms. That can be a great way to be encouraged if you feel like you don't know where to begin and you need encouragement from the Lord. But don't just open up the Bible in the middle and join mid-conversation. 
That's a horrible way to approach reading Scripture. And so what we actually find here in, in, in this parable is that we're joining a conversation that's already been happening. And so we need to understand uh, the context that this conversation or this parable is taking place in. And so that's the goal of what we're going to accomplish here today as we look at this spooky parable just a few weeks ago before Halloween. So while we read this passage, passage, uh, I want to encourage you to try to avoid adding your own commentary or your own assumptions concerning the supernatural. This is a great passage um, for us to look at as it kicks off this series that we're in. And when it pertains to this specific passage, though, Jesus is not giving us a lecture or a discourse on how demons operate. That's not what's happening in this parable. Parables are stories with a point. And so there's a point that Jesus is trying to make using this imagery of this demon, right? Is it possible for demons to voluntarily leave a person on their own? Do they hop around from person to person as if, like, it could be on me right now, right? I, no, that's, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. I, I guess that could be possible, that demons can voluntarily leave whoever it is that they're attacking. I, I don't know that. And while that is possible, this is not the purpose of the passage that we're looking at. For whatever reason, in this particular case, the demon decides to leave this person in search of rest. Now, is that a thing that demons need? Do they need rest? Do they go on vacation in search of rest? Again, I would encourage you to try to avoid speculation. We're told that the demon goes in search of waterless places. What does that mean? Does that mean I need to carry with me a vial of holy water? So when I'm at work with that demon-possessed coworker, I can splash water on them to confirm what I've known all along. They're possessed. No, don't do that. It's a great way to get fired or get arrested or any of the above. Okay, don't, that's not the point. Likely the picture that Jesus is portraying for us in this parable is that the enemy is most comfortable in places associated with death and destruction and desolation as opposed to places that represent life and creation. So we get the picture now, right? We understand that. Well, apparently, not finding the rest that this demon is looking for, it returns home. That's creepy to me. That's like a horror movie. This thought that this demon calls this individual its home, the place where it can do the most tormenting and bringing about the most chaos and destruction that scratches its itch for control. However, once this demon returns home, what does it find? Oh, the curb appeal. It's been spruced up a little bit, right? They converted it to an open layout, open room layout, whatever, right? They, they remodeled the kitchen, they painted the place, they redid the bathrooms to add value, to take advantage of the hot market that we're in right now. So this demon returns home to see that the place has been spruced up. This is a picture of what Christless religion looks like. Track with me here. What we're looking at today is the idol of religion disguised, really, which is the idol of self-help. The idea that we can somehow change ourselves. That we can make ourselves better and somehow justify ourselves before God. We are all at risk of doing this in some form or another. 
This person puts things in order, causes things to look good. However, there is one problem that needs solving. No one occupies the home, which is an invitation for the wrong tenants. The demon returns and finds seven of his buddies, seven representing the number of completion. We are familiar with that imagery in Scripture. So now the, the, the end result of this individual is worse than the beginning, they are completely overrun, they are beyond hope, beyond pale, and there is no chance of them being saved at that point. Jesus then tells us that this person doesn't just represent an individual, but represents an entire generation in danger of rejecting the message of Jesus Christ. And we're given this word, this generation, which we see throughout chapter 12. And so it's our first hint and clue to look back and see what it is exactly that Jesus is referencing. And so if you have your Bibles with you, turn back to chapter 12, keep that open, and we're going to look at this together so that way we can better understand this parable that Jesus gives here at the end of chapter 12. And so go to chapter 12 and you'll find that the beginning of chapter 12 opens a new section in Matthew's gospel account. That's important to realize, right? that the Gospels aren't just a collection of random stories thrown together, but there's actually a structure to the way that they were written. They were trying to accomplish something, and, and chapter 12 opens up a new section in Matthew's Gospel account. And what we're witnessing is the increasing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. They're starting to butt heads. Chapter 12 starts with two stories concerning the Sabbath. In one of the stories, the followers of Jesus are caught on the Sabbath, plucking heads of grain and eating them. We would think, so what? No big deal. But you have to get the picture. They're plucking the heads of grain, they're rubbing them in their hands to get rid of the chaff, and then they're eating the kernels of the grain. And the Pharisees think, gotcha. They're harvesting on the Sabbath. They're working. They're profaning the Sabbath. And Jesus is thinking, you guys don't get it. The Sabbath was made for man, right, is what he's saying here. And so he helps the Pharisees, they can't see this, to understand that they miss the heart of the law. It wasn't about keeping rules and regulations on people, but it was meant to provide rest for people. And that's exactly what the disciples were doing. They were resting and eating. And, and Jesus was there to bring rest and healing and restoration for people. But here, the religious leaders call out Jesus' disciples in a, an attempt to discredit him and his followers to say, look, they don't even observe the law. And Jesus says, oh, really? Don't you remember King David when he ate the showbread? that was only for the priests? It's okay for him to break the law? And oh, by the way, didn't you realize that the priests profane the Sabbath because they work on the Sabbath? If you're gonna accuse me of breaking the law, you better be consistent and accuse them of breaking the law as well. And ultimately, it's in this moment that Jesus chooses to reveal something vital about himself. Check it out in verse six. It says, something greater than the temple is here. This points to Jesus 
as being greater than the temple and revealing himself as our high priest. The temple points to the person of Jesus. The temple was only an illustration that was to be made obsolete. They should have been able to recognize that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, their Savior, was in their midst, but they were so concerned with their own self-image. They were so concerned and insecure about holding on to power that the, the, the very one that the temple pointed to was in their midst, and they couldn't see it, and Jesus reveals, and they still couldn't catch it, that one greater than the temple is here because Jesus is our high priest. And to further drive the point home, Jesus then enters the synagogue and heals a man with a withered hand. Now, there were already rules concerning harvesting on the Sabbath, and there were also rules surrounding the application of medical treatment on the Sabbath as well, that only life-threatening injuries could be tended to. And this man's withered hand did not require immediate attention. It probably had been going on for some time, and it wasn't really life-threatening. Once again, Jesus finds himself in hot water with the religious leaders for healing this man, never mind the fact that if you read the account, what does Jesus say to do? Stretch out your hand. And in stretching out his hand in faith, his hand is healed. Do you see what religion does? It actually puts a barrier between those in need and the help that they need. It puts a barrier between those who need salvation and the opportunity that they have to find Jesus. Jesus was there to heal this man and they were trying to prevent him from getting the help that he needed. They dehumanized this man. They couldn't see that this man needed help. They disregarded him in order to make an example out of Jesus, but Jesus saw through their self-righteousness and was faithful to the heart of the law. He was the great high priest who reminded them that Sabbath was made for man. And he brought Sabbath to this man by restoring his hand, and he can bring Sabbath to you and I by restoring our souls. The problem wasn't Jesus breaking the Sabbath. The problem wasn't just the man's withered hand. It was the withered hearts of the Pharisees that couldn't be seen by the naked eye. They were evil as they put a barrier between these people and Christ. And Jesus will draw this out even more, helping them see how their false religion was really the idol of self-help. In order to continue Jesus' healing ministry, he withdrew and continued to meet the needs of those who religion kept marginalizing by the religious leaders who were too busy with their own insecurities, protecting their positions of power to be bothered with the legitimate needs of others who the gospel is meant to save, right? They were too busy with maintaining their power to be bothered with helping those who the gospel was meant to save. And this is where we get another important piece of information that helps us accurately understand this little parable that Jesus gave. At some point during Jesus' healing ministry, a demon-possessed man is healed by Jesus, and all of the people question verse 23. You can read this. 
All of the people who Jesus is with begin to question in verse 23. Can you hear the anticipation? Can you hear the hope? Can this be the son of David? Could this be the one that we were waiting for? Could this be the one that the temple pointed to? Could this be the son of David? Could this be the Christ? Could this be our Messiah? In this moment, the religious leaders do the unthinkable. And to undermine Jesus and his message, they begin to associate his works with the work of Satan. Indeed, this will quell the crowd's interest in Jesus and cause them to second-guess his identity. This was cutting people off from having access to Christ's life-giving, soul-saving message. Jesus, unwilling to stand for this, shares that whoever is not for him is against him and makes clear that rejecting his message is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is unforgivable. Consider this. To associate the works of Christ with the enemy in an attempt to prevent people from coming to know Christ as their Lord is, in fact, a work of the enemy itself. So while they're associating the message and the works of Christ with Satan, it's really them who are in cahoots with Satan, preventing people from coming to know Jesus. That's blasphemy. That's the unpardonable sin. This is what religion does. It props up the self-righteous while making salvation not only unattainable, but unattractive to those who need it. Religion, false religion, is a barrier to the gospel. Jesus then in verses 33 through 37 uses the imagery of a tree that bears good fruit and bad fruit, exposing that the religious leaders are bearing bad fruit and it's their very words that God will replay before them in heaven, figuratively, to condemn them. It's their very words that are the rotten, evil, wicked fruit that's being produced from their hearts. Jesus then does something, I think, profound. When the religious leaders who are unimpressed by his miracles, diminishing them to magic tricks, ask for a sign. Can you imagine the audacity? He just healed a man with a withered hand right in front of their faces, and they say, no, that was cute. Give us a sign that really lets us know that you are who you claim to be. They ask for a sign, and Jesus then corrects the religious leaders, telling them that a wicked generation asks for a sign and that no sign will be given them but the sign of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet, but he never really got it. Thank you. I really needed that. That's the Veggie Tales, right? Jonah was a prophet who, swallowed not by a whale, a big fish, great fish, was in the belly of a whale for three days later, and then he was spit out after three days. Jesus is saying, one greater than Jonah is here. And while you're claiming that I'm breaking the law on the Sabbath, it's you who's breaking the law because you are premeditating my murder in your hearts. And the sign that will be given you 
is the sign of Jonah that you will crucify me and I will be put into the heart of the earth, into the tomb, into the grave for three days later and then I will rise again. He's saying, keep an eye out because not only am I the high priest, not only am I greater than the temple, but I am the prophet and I am greater than all the prophets. I am greater than Jonah. And then at the end of verses 38 and 42, Jesus takes it to the next level by using the example of the queen of Sheba who didn't need a sign to travel many miles to experience the wisdom of Solomon compared to the religious leaders who can't see their savior standing right in front of them. He is in fact our high priest, he is our prophet, and he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and none can compare to Jesus. Jesus points out that Nineveh, Nineveh, who repented from the message of a reluctant prophet, they repented after hearing the saddest evangelistic outreach message I've ever heard. He says, 40 more days and this city will be destroyed. That was his entire message. Wouldn't you love it if that was all I said today? Maybe not that, but my message was one sentence. They repented. The queen of Sheba will stand up on the day of judgment as witnesses against these religious leaders to pronounce judgment over their wicked, unbelieving hearts. Jesus, in this interaction, deals a death blow to the idol of false religion, the idol of self-help. And it's with this backdrop that we arrive at the spooky parable that we looked at at the beginning of our message today. And so with a fresh set of eyes, let's quickly go back through this together. When an unclean spirit has gone out, verse 43, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. The unclean spirit, a demon, finds the person it occupies inhospitable and begins to look for a new place to cause destruction. In the next verse, verse 44, we're tipped off as to why this unclean spirit may have found the person temporarily inhospitable. It says, then I will return, then it says, I will return to my house from which it came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, sweat, and put in order. There's a change that has taken place. After a tenant leaves, the landlord has to go in and prepare it for the next tenant, even if that means making repairs to put things in order. Moral reform has taken place in the life of this individual. Temporarily making it inhospitable for this demon to live there. But the demon realizes, oh, They didn't actually change. They just changed how they get what they want. They used to think that they could just take what they wanted. They could sleep around, they could, you fill in the blank. They could live wild and out, right? But now they think that they can get what they want by being a good person. What what a trap. That they can convince themselves that I'm a good person. And if there is a heaven, based off of my goodness and how much I've changed, certainly God wouldn't prevent me from getting in. 
Church, we have to be careful. We want, God wants us to be assured in his word of our salvation. But don't be fooled. Don't confuse your religious activity as being equal to your salvation. Yes, you should bear good fruit. God has good works for you to do. But don't think for a second that your religious activity somehow earns you or causes you to receive salvation as if you're worthy. Moral reform has taken place in the life of this man, whatever that might look like. And in the next verse, we encounter the problem that Jesus is pointing out in the lives of the religious leaders. The house was left unoccupied, verse 45. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. In this statement, Jesus reveals the insidious nature of religion. You can actually convince yourself and be in cahoots with the enemy by thinking that I'm a good person and I'm saved because of my religious activities. We can actually lie to ourselves and work in the same direction as the enemy so that what happens is we're actually further away from God than we were previously. The worst state of that person was, the last state of that person was worse than the first state. And then he says, actually, this isn't just an individual. This is an entire generation at risk of rejecting the gospel. The parable wasn't just about this man. It was, in fact, about the religious leaders. Religion is, false religion, is actually the idol of self-help disguised. Religion defined this way, like the man in this parable is hollow and powerless to save. How do you know if you've bowed at the foot of this idol? There are many ways for you to probably discover that, but one of which that we see in this account is if you think that you are better than others, forgetting that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. You are more like those people that you hate than you are different from them. You are more like those people that you think are sinners living in darkness than you are different from them. The only thing that saves you is your faith and your belief in Jesus Christ, the one who occupies your house. Amen? So if you feel like there are people that you are repulsed by in this world, whether that be politically, whether that be ideologically or socially, that is not the gospel because the gospel moves you towards people so that you can introduce them to the one who saves and that he might bring them eternal rest, Sabbath, amen? The religious leaders forgot that the temple, the prophets, and the kings were meant to point to a future where each of those offices would become obsolete because one greater than the temple has come. The true prophet is here, and Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is, in fact, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that through him, the nations of the world might be blessed. Father Abraham had many sons, 
Many sons had father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. Church, we are the fulfillment of the promise. We are grafted in. How does this happen? Man, we've heard it again and again. Behold Jesus. Has he placed a love? Has God placed a love for Jesus in your heart? Behold Jesus. Meditate on Jesus. Are you here today because you're going to church so you can leave feeling good about yourself for the rest of the week only to do the same things you did last week so that you can come back, wash, rinse, repeat? Or are you here today because you love Jesus? And I'm telling you, if you love Jesus, it's because he has first loved you and you understand his love for you. Don't confuse your religious activity and your seemingly moral superiority with your salvation. The only way to be saved is to believe in the one the Father has sent, the prophet, the priest, and the king. This is an example of what Pastor Tim talked about a few weeks ago, of the written word leading us to the living word. His name is Jesus. And that by beholding him, he might occupy our lives so that when the enemy comes knocking, he'll realize, I don't got a chance. And then we're reminded of the words of 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for your people. God, I pray that we would not lie to ourselves, that we would not be self-deceived today. Lord, we are prone to self-deception. We lie to ourselves all of the time, trying to make ourselves feel better about ourselves because we can't cope with the reality that we're sinners in need of a savior. And so I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be in conjunction with the enemy here, that we would be very clear about this, that the only way to be saved is to believe in the one who you've sent, your son, Jesus Christ, and that by beholding him, you would make rest available for us and that we could point others to the hope that they have in Jesus as well. I ask your blessing upon your word and your people in Jesus' name. Amen.